Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Coming up on this episode of the Box of Oddities, the tragic story of what some call the most haunted building in Brazil. And then, demon traps. What the heck? The Box of Oddities. If it's weird, we talk about it. The world is full of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Somebody sent a mystery gift, yeah. uh, and I'm assuming it's to me because it's about the JFK assassination. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, it's called Phantom Shot. Eyewitnesses solved the JFK assassination. And it arrived to our post box uh, with no note, no information, no return address, just a book in the mail. Yeah. And so I wanted to thank whoever's responsible for this. I have an idea in my head who it might be, but I'm, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much. Um, this will provide many, many hours of enjoyable reading. Not that the event itself was enjoyable, certainly mm-hmm. not for JFK or Governor Conley or Jackie or anybody really right. in the motorcade. It was all pretty traumatic and terrible. You know what I've learned because I've been re-watching the recent JFK documentary, Oliver Stone's JFK documentary, and it appears as though somebody acted with Oswald. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> you, I guess he's not the only guy who was involved. It seems like maybe there was some sort of conspiracy. Something like that. Got it. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Well, that was awfully nice. It was. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Just a reminder, our box is no longer available to us after like next week. So um, please don't send us things. Not because we don't appreciate when you send us things. We just don't want it to get returned to you. And then you have to spend money for nothing. You know how, you know, you know what's going on. Yeah. We're still trying to figure out how we're going to deal with that once we move to Ecuador. Also, how are we going to send our Christmas cards to our patrons this year? We have to figure all of this out. Did you know, here's an interesting fact. Did you know Ecuador does not have a postal service? It's so weird and something that we really took for granted. Mm. Like we just assumed that they did, of course. Yeah. Uh, They don't. Everything has to be shipped like DHL or some sort of private shipping company. The post service is almost so, uh, is ubiquitous the right word? Like it's almost so ingrained in me as a given that when you told me they didn't have a post service, (laughs) I was like, what do you, but what do you mean though? 
But what do you mean, though? No home delivery. It's so weird. I've been following some posts online about how people in in, uh, Cuenca, the city we're moving to, deal with that, expats who live there. And most of them say they just have any packages delivered to the DHL site and they have to go pick them up. Strange. Yeah. But hey, it's not our country, so we don't make the rules. Also, we're going to be living on the side of an active volcano, so that'll be fun. Right. So who's worried about mail? In the grander scheme of things. (laughs) My package is late. My home's been destroyed by lava. You know, we have to keep things in perspective. Right. I've got magma feet. And nobody needs that. I'd like to invite you all to sit down and put your magma feet up and uh, listen to this story. (laughs) When one thinks about the city of Sao Paulo, In Brazil, it's usually of a bustling metropolis. It's actually the largest city in Brazil, although it's not the capital. It's the vibrant heart of Brazil's economic pulse. However, tucked within this urban tapestry lies an enigma that is shrouded in the shadowy past and the specter-riddled present. It's infamous for a ghastly history which stretches back centuries. It is considered today one of Brazil's, if not the, one of Brazil's most haunted sites. Ooh. The Juema building has a very dark legacy, and it began before its foundations were even laid. In the early 19th century, the land which the building now stands on belonged to renowned Portuguese chemist Dr. Paulo Fernando de Carmago. But I'm just going to call him what he was more commonly referred to as, at the time, Paul the Sorcerer. Oh, all right. That's a very fancy name. Historian Jose Roberto Salis provides a chilling account. Quote, the legend speaks of a curse that was cast by the mother of Paul the Sorcerer with her dying breath, promising that the ground would drink the blood of her kin and carry their tormented spirits for eternity. Why? That's not very nice, Mom. No, no, but she had good reason. Oh, okay. In the annals of Sao Paulo's history, annals. <laughs> few figures inspire as much dread and morbid fascination as Paul the Sorcerer, a Portuguese chemist of note in the 19th century, His notorious reputation came not from his scientific achievements, but for a series of horrific crimes that would see him hanged. Some believe this was the genesis of the curse of the land that the building now stands on. He was born in 1780 in Lisbon, Portugal, and he was considered a prodigy showing exceptional prowess in the field of chemistry. However, his interest in the natural science was accompanied by a fascination with the occult, and he became known for attempting to blend alchemy with scientific studies. As his skills in chemistry grew, so too did his reputation as a sorcerer, which is where the name Paul the Sorcerer comes from. Right. It would be weird if he was a neighborhood grocer, (laughs) but they called him Paul the Sorcerer. He immigrated to Brazil in the early 1800s, seeking new opportunities in this growing colony. And he settled in Sao Paulo and acquired the land where the Juelma building now stands. Can I interrupt you real quick and just say I appreciate very much that you're saying the name of the city that way? Because I would be like, Sao Paulo. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in Brazil, Sao Paulo. So when he settled in Sao Paulo, 
he acquired the land where the building now stands. And it was here that his life took a dark and uh, irrevocable turn. The exact nature of Paul the Sorcerer's crimes, all of the details kind of remain shrouded in, in mystery. What is known is that he was convicted of several murders, but the most shocking among them were those of his own kin. It's said that under the pretense of scientific experiment, he poisoned his mother and two sisters. Each crime was meticulously planned, with Paul the Sorcerer using his extensive knowledge of chemistry to concoct lethal potions that left little evidence behind. Aha. Upon discovering the deeds, the local community was filled with, uh, with horror and outrage, and he was apprehended, swiftly tried, and sentenced to death by hanging. His execution was carried out on his property, an act some believe served to further taint the land with his malevolent influence. And again, according to the local lore, with her dying breath, his mother put a curse on him and all that he owned. She vowed that the ground would drink the blood of his kin and his tormented spirit would forever haunt the land. In the years following Paul the Sorcerer's death, his property was abandoned, and that led to more rumors of the curse. Nobody wanted to buy the land. Sure. But over time, the land would change hands several times, eventually becoming the site of the Juelma building, which forever tied Paul the Sorcerer's heinous crimes and tragic family history to the haunting legacy of one of Brazil's most infamous buildings. The cursed reputation of this property intensified on February 1st, 1974. A day of unremarkable beginnings, it quickly turned into a nightmare for the residents and workers of the building, which at the time was a, uh, an apartment building. A fire broke out, and it quickly turned into nothing short of an inferno, a blaze that would sear itself into the city's memory. And according to fire investigation reports, the fire was sparked by a faulty air conditioning unit on the 12th floor. The flames spread quickly, fueled by flammable materials within the building, such as wood paneling and carpets. And within minutes, the entire building was engulfed in a raging inferno. Jose Carlos Dos Santos, a firefighter who was among the first responders in the crime scene, said, quote, The flames were unlike anything I'd ever seen. They kept growing, consuming everything in their path. Their heat was intense, and the smoke made it difficult to breathe or see. For nearly four hours, the building was at the mercy of this relentless blaze. Rescue workers, they were hampered by the intensity of the fire, and the building's architectural design, which lacked necessary uh, fire safety measures, plus none of their ladders could reach the top of the building. Mm -hmm. The human cost of the disaster was staggering. Official reports put the death toll at 179 people. Wow. With over 300 more injured. This is the most deadly fire in Brazilian history. The victims included building residents, office workers, visitors caught unaware by the sudden disaster, as well as emergency responders. Do you believe that the land was cursed before Paul the Sorcerer moved there? Because he didn't start murdering people until he moved there, right? We don't know for a fact, but he. what we do know is that he murdered people on that land when he moved there. Mm -hmm. 
What happened there before, we have no idea. Well, I'm just saying it seems interesting that he was just Paul until he moved to that property, and then he was Paul the murderous sorcerer. And so maybe it wasn't that the mom cast a curse after he was all, you know, murdery and stuff. Maybe it was that the property carried some sort of curse with it and it affected Paul just as much as it did Hmm. those later. Very interesting theory. Thank you. I'm chock-a-block of theories. One eyewitness to the blaze, Luisa de Souza, a secretary working on the ninth floor, recounts, quote, there was panic everywhere. People were screaming, crying, some were praying. The smoke was suffocating. We could see people at the windows above, trapped. Some jumped. It was horrifying. Among the dead was a woman identified only as the mystery of the 13th floor. And this is weird because, as you all know, most buildings, at least here in the U.S., they do not have a 13th floor. Technically, they do, but they they just list them 10, 11, 12, 14. Of course. Nobody wants to stay on, stay on the 13th floor. But they had a 13th floor. And she was found in the elevator with 11 other bodies, all burned beyond recognition, except for her. Miraculously, she remained unburned, clutching her rosary in her hand. But she was still dead? She was dead. So I guess that's not much of a miracle, in my opinion. Her spirit is one of the spirits that people report seeing in the building. Okay. In the aftermath of the blaze, the building was left in a state of utter devastation. The facade was charred and blackened. Windows were blown out. The interior reduced to ashes. It would take several years and extensive renovation to erase the physical evidence of the disaster. However, the emotional and the psychological scars, much like the curse, continued to linger, intensifying the haunted reputation of the Juelma building. Soon after the fire, reports of paranormal activity began to surface. And once the building was restored, things really escalated. Workers renovating the building spoke of eerie apparitions, chilling whispers, unexplained phenomena. Psychic researcher Marcia Fernandez states, The building is a psychic powerhouse. The residual energies from the past traumas have imprinted on the location. Many visitors have sensed a heavy aura of despair and fear. Numerous individuals associated with the building have suffered ill-fated ends, which of course bolsters the claims of the building being cursed. When the building was still ablaze, three rescue workers who helped extinguish the fires met untimely deaths within a year. Several former residents have experienced a string of tragedies and accidents, most of which were linked to their time at the building. One of the first to share their eerie encounters was a guy named Marcos Ferreira, who was a worker involved in the building's renovation, quote, we would often hear whispers when nobody else was around. Tools would go missing. Now, I can't really cite that as evidence of paranormal activity personally, because I'll be working on something and I'll put a screwdriver down next to me and then I can't find it. Right. So disappearing tools, I would have to discount (laughs) as evidence. That is shocking to me. (laughs) Although he would go on to say that they would turn up in odd places, like he'd find a hammer hanging from a light fixture. Lights would flicker without reason. I felt like we were never truly alone. As businesses started moving into the renovated building, and now it's more of an office complex, employees started reporting inexplicable occurrences. Offices would suddenly grow cold. Electronic devices would malfunction without apparent cause. 
Elevator doors would open and close on their own. Mm. It sounds like a lot of this is electrical based and maybe there was some damage during the fire. Mariana Costa, an office worker in the building, shares a strange experience that she had. She said, quote, one day I was working late and everyone else had left. Suddenly I felt an icy chill and I heard a woman's voice whispering in my ear. I turned around, but no one was there. I left the building and never went back to work. What was she whispering? I imagine it was something like, the empanadas at Ralph's are amazing. They have a place called Ralph's that sells empanadas? I guess, I don't know. In Saul I wasn't. I don't know. I don't know what that spirit lady knows. The two most frequently reported apparitions are believed to be that of Dr. Paulo Fernando de Camargo, Paul the Sorcerer, and the woman that was found in the elevator during the fire. Even today, the building continues to be a hub of unexplained phenomena and paranormal activity. Even with the passage of time, the property's tragic history seems to echo in its halls, manifesting in spectral sightings, eerie sounds, and unexplained occurrences. It's been repurposed, as I mentioned before, to house various businesses and offices, but occupants continue to report unsettling incidents. People are constantly reporting whispers, hearing whispers in empty corridors. Strange orbs appear in photographs. Spectral figures have been spotted in the early hours of the morning. Recently, one security guard said, One night, as I was making my rounds, I saw a woman dressed in 70s clothing standing by a window on the 12th floor. As I approached her, she disappeared. I was alone on the floor. It was the same window where several people were trapped during the fire. I can't get the song Disco Inferno out of my head, and I feel like that's really inappropriate. I can't get it out of my head. It has nothing to do with this topic. Sure. (laughs) A fairly well-known psychic investigator in the area named Sofia Guerrera said, The building is a hotbed of paranormal activity. There's almost tangible energy there, particularly on the 12th and 13th floor. It's though... The past refuses to be forgotten, and its echoes resonate in the hallways. You can almost feel the vibrations. Hmm. So whether these occurrences indicate supernatural activity or merely just the product of human imagination influenced by the building's documented tragic past, Mm -hmm. it's become an indelible part of the narrative of one of Sao Paulo's most infamous edifices, and spiritual sightings continue to be reported to this day. That story had everything. It had sorcerers, they had Pauls, it had murder, there was tragedy, spirits. Great job. My source information, the Sao Paulo Times, the haunting history of Sao Paulo, history of Brazil's dark side, specifically the chapter, Paul the Sorcerer, the Dark Alchemist of Sao Paulo. In addition, the fire investigation report from February of 1974, and Paranormal World. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids. And they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child. And she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. 
And here's the thing. If you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames. And living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house, yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now... That thing in the middle. In the annals of history, there are a few figures as imposing and dignified, as tipsy, as James Buchanan, the 15th President of the United States. You see, Buchanan had a reputation for politeness, statesmanship, and a rather prodigious passion for whiskey. It's been reported that this man would go through 10 gallons of whiskey a week was he trying to single-handedly inflate the value of the Corn Belt or just single-handedly sustain the whiskey industry? Either way, it's a sound economic strategy. William emailed us, curator at theboxofoddities.com. Hi guys, listening to Box 543 about the ball drop in New York City and thought I would tell you some interesting tidbits about other ball drops. Ooh. I live near the city of Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. And several years ago, they began their own sort of ball drop tradition for New Year's where they drop an oyster shell from the top of a well-known restaurant adjacent to the beach. <laughs> okay. Also, in Mobile, Alabama, they drop a moon pie every year. Does it just splat on the sidewalk? <laughs> I don't it know. seems like it would be like horrendously anticlimactic. 
Kelsey sent us a message. Oh, my God. I was listening to Box 536, and Kat was talking about that super awesome guy, James Harrison, the man with the golden arm. Well, I started to make connections. My mother has negative blood, but my brother has positive blood. She had to do the RH immune globulin shots so her body wouldn't reject her future children, myself and my sister. So without science and that guy, I wouldn't be able to listen to your podcast. Love you guys. That's beautiful. Right? And Matthew sent us this. Hello, Mama and Papa Freak. Just listened to Box 520 about the gentleman who lost both his arms in the grain machine on his farm. The same thing happened to my great-grandfather. Only this was in Poland in the 20s. He lost both of his arms. Now, I don't know the story too well, but from what I can gather, he was only able to reattach his right arm. It didn't seem to slow him down, though, because during World War II, he used to boil eggs and hide them in his jacket pocket, and he would walk along the fence of the concentration camps and drop boiled eggs within reach of the prisoners. <gasps> my understanding is that he did this often enough to help without being caught. Oh my God. But I don't know. I heard this story back in 2014. Love you guys. Y'all provide endless entertainment while I'm here in the office and the day is droning on. I hope that's true. I love that story. That is beautiful. That Thanks, is Matthew. so nice. And Florin sent us a message. By the way, if you're ever in Michigan again or uh, you want to talk about Michigan, here's some helpful pronunciations. And there, there's a whole pronunciation chart of Michigan-related <laughs> town names. Thank you. There's one called Gross Eel, and I responded, and I was like, Gross Eel, that's funny. And they wrote back, Michigan has a whole bunch of pronunciations of different cities and streets. It's a combination of French, Indian, and Canadian. It's a real melting pot, so uh, AKA things I can't pronounce. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. The earliest recorded owner of the core of the Knoll estate in the 1290s was Robert de Knoll. The first record of the manor of Knoll dates back to 1364, 
The property exchanged hands, sometimes forcibly, through the years, many adding to it and building on to it. In 1456, the property was sold for 400 marks to Thomas Boucher, Archbishop of Canterbury. Again, substantial expansions and renovations took place. After Boucher's death in 1486, Knoll was occupied by the next four archbishops. In the late 15th century, Henry VII was an occasional visitor. During that time, Archbishop Warnham owned the property, and Henry was off to visit to hunt deer. After the death of Warnham and before the appointment of his successor, Henry VII found this property useful as a residence for his daughter Mary. Warnham's successor as Archbishop was Thomas Cranmer, and he eventually traded Knoll and some other properties with Henry VIII. In return, Cranmer received a package primarily consisting of former abbeys and priories between Canterbury and Dover. And this started a series of exchanges between aristocracy, church folk, and royalty, each trying to put their mark upon the property. Today, the Knoll House, or just Knoll as it's known, is one of the five largest houses in England by any measure, covering four acres. The house? The house. Is four acres. Is four acres. Wow. It's got 26 acres of gardens and fields, as well as a medieval deer park around a thousand acres. No big deal. Its size and complexity have grown with each new owner. It's almost a Winchester-style maze of approximately 420 rooms, interconnected by courtyards, staircases, attics, and seemingly endless corridors. Four acres? 420 rooms, dude. Whoa. Restoration of a place this size and with this kind of history, as you can imagine, is an enormous undertaking. But that's what the Museum of London Archaeology was doing when they found the Demon Trap. Uh, what? The origin of demon traps can be traced back to medieval times when beliefs in magic, witchcraft, and demonic forces were deeply ingrained in society. It was believed that these forces could cause harm, misfortune, and illness to individuals and communities. And as a response, people sought various protective measures. Of course they did. One of these measures was the use of a physical object that were believed to trap or repel malevolent entities. And the specific origin of demon traps is difficult to pinpoint. Of course, it evolved and changed and who used it and how over the years just melded and molded and all that business. Demon traps were typically made of physical materials and written incantations. They were often constructed as elaborate diagrams or symbols engraved on various surfaces, including walls, floors and doorways and even household objects the traps were believed to act as a powerful talisman or charm providing protection against witches and demons one common type of trap was the hex foil also known as the witch's star or the witch's foot it consisted of a six-pointed star enclosed within a circle and various inscriptions and protective symbols. It was believed that witches and demons would be trapped within the hex foil, unable to escape its confines. 
during the reign of Henry the Seventh and Henry the Eighth, and the time when thousand acre deer farms was a thing, <laughs> beliefs surrounding demon traps were rooted in the idea that most illnesses were caused by evil forces or bad smells or bad smells even or evil forces that smelled bad sometimes that's the case demon traps were seen as a means of defense providing a physical barrier against the malevolent forces i always find it very interesting that these forces are working all the time to get at you to do what kind of harm they can um but they must have been very very stupid and if it's like (laughs) well look i made a star and now he can't hurt you (laughs) but Researchers believe that this is what they found uh, when the Museum of London Archaeology were performing restorations at Knoll House in Kent. The markings had not been mentioned in any documents related to Knoll and remained hidden for more than four centuries. It's thought that the craftsmen working for Thomas Sackville, Lord Treasurer to James I, who at that time owned Knoll, carved the marks in a planned system prior to the construction of that room. The witch marks, also known as apotropaic marks, emerged on beams and joists when archaeologists were taking up floorboards in the bedchamber prepared for James, but also around the fireplace, which was often considered as a weak spot for witches. The fireplace? Yeah. Hmm. They can get in pretty easily, I guess. Witches, demons, Santa. Those researching the findings think that they were added in anticipation of a visit from the king with the intention of protecting him from evil spirits. King James had a keen interest in witchcraft and actually passed some witchcraft laws, making it an offense punishable by death, and even wrote a book on the topic called Demonology. The inscriptions and symbols were often associated with religious and spiritual beliefs. Um, Sometimes they would include biblical verses, but the ones found at Knoll did not. Now, the king didn't actually come to visit, so um, there was a lot of prep for the king's potential demon attackers, but they didn't really need to be done. The, The interesting thing about this is that it was those that were building these new rooms in preparation for the king, who, by the way, never showed up, planned this out methodically and didn't tell anyone about it. And so it was centuries before we got to see these. And what an incredible find that must have been. As the Enlightenment period progressed, rationalism and skepticism started to challenge traditional beliefs and the usage of demon traps kind of fell out of favor. The rise of scientific thinking and the increased understanding of natural phenomena led to a decline in those ideas. While specific archeological or historical records relating to demon traps from the 17th century are scarce, some references to those devices can be found. And as I said, often they were also called witch traps. One of the most prevalent uses of witch traps was the famous witch trials in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. That included testimonies and accusations related to the use of devil traps by accused witches, which is interesting Hmm. because that would imply that the witches were using the witch traps, whereas previously the traps were used to catch witches. As I said, 
Their use and understanding of them has changed throughout the years. Demon traps were often seen as evidence of a person's involvement in witchcraft, leading to their persecution and punishment. So again, as I said, it's really interesting the way that their use and references has changed throughout the years. So that's how researchers found a demon trap at Knoll and also, Noel seems really neat and we should go. Many evil Ghostbusters. Yeah. I ain't afraid of no ghost. But they actually were. They were very afraid all the time. <laughs> That's pretty much what yeah. they did. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of demon traps. I love that. I'm glad. I got my information from nationaltrust.org, seeker.com, message to eagle, and protectyourself.org. As always, we appreciate you hanging out with us. Would you take a moment and maybe share the podcast with a friend of yours you probably have friends that would enjoy this type of thing because you're friends and you're a freak i'm guessing you have freak friends (laughs) it'll help us grow the podcast we appreciate you so much and we'll see you next time until then keep flying that freak flag fly it proudly you beautiful freak and so let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time on who did what now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.